Well, friends, let me invite you to take your Bibles now and to turn to the letter of 1 Corinthians, where we'll pick up in our study in chapter 2, first five verses of chapter 2 this morning. If, if you're visiting with us and you don't own a copy of the Bible, we would love to give you one. So look in front of you uh, on the back of the pew or the back of the seat in front of you, there should be a little black hard copy Bible. That's put there not just for you to use today, but for you to take with you. Because we'd love for you to have it and we'd love for you to continue reading, following up on what you're going to hear this morning. And we'd love the chance to talk to you about what you'll hear. This morning we'll be on, in 1 Corinthians, as I've said, and, and you can find that in the table of contents at the very beginning of that Bible. Uh, I grew up bass fishing, and I love it. Doing my best now to teach my boys how to do it. And if you know anything about bass fishing, you know that most of the time you're using artificial lures when you try to catch a bass. You've got to trick the bass into biting whatever it is you've thrown his way. I got one that's uh, about that big. This isn't going to do much for you guys on the podcast, right? <laughs> it's a couple of inches long. It's shaped sort of like a little minnow, but the, the front of it is all dug out into this little concave little opening. It floats on the top of the water. You throw it, it lands, and then you just, you just pop your, your rod back like this, and it makes a little splash looks just like a helpless small fish thoughtlessly playing near the surface of the water on a bright sunny day to a large bass that wants to eat one of its own young. I didn't get a smile out of that. I was like, that was a joke. I mean, it's true, but I thought you guys would find it funny. Now, I got a whole bag full of plastic worms. I got multiple bags of these things, different in different colors, slightly different shapes with slightly different tail designs because when you throw a plastic worm out into the water, it's just going to lay there until you start to work it. Sometimes you lift the rod nice and slow and it'll rise up off the bottom and that tail will spin and it'll look almost alive. Got lizards that do the same thing. I once saw someone fishing with a topwater lure that looked like a little bird with wings that would flap as it was reeled across the surface of the water, like a helpless little baby bird that fell out of the nest into the water, a meal for a largemouth bass. It's genius. You ever been to bass pro shops? I mean, I don't even know how many square feet that bass pro shops is out there at Opry Mills. It's humongous. And almost everything in there is row after row of shelf after shelf full of artificial lures like this. In all colors and shapes and sizes, every single one of them promising some new creative deception that you haven't tried yet that's guaranteed to produce better results than whatever lure you have been using. And you'll find magazines and YouTube channels and workshops out there to teach fishermen how to, how to hone their techniques, you know, how to hold the pole just right and raise it at just the right level, reel it at just the right rate. All to make that bait look more and more lifelike. And the reason that, the reason you need all this variety and you need all this creativity and all this training and techniques is that it's not easy to make something that's dead look like it isn't dead. That takes work. That takes ingenuity. When I was a kid, I mostly did bass fishing. My granddaddy was real good at it and he taught me. It's one of the ways we bonded as a, when, I was, when I was younger. Every now and then, there was a friend in our church who would come by my house and pick me up and take me with him to go catfishing 
on the Alabama River. See, catfish are a lot better to eat than bass. And Alabama is full of these catfish, and we like to eat them. The thing with catfish is, though, you need live bait. Mostly, you need live bait. So what he'd do is, this friend, the night before, he'd go out to what was called a Catawba tree. Anybody ever heard of that, a Catawba tree? To get a Catawba worm? Sue, Sue knows what I'm talking about. I've only got one raised hand on there. Catawba worms are these really thick, juicy worms. They don't move fast, but they move with just this little tantalizing wiggle. He'd go get a bunch of them and put them into a little jar. And he'd come before the sun was up, pick me up. We'd go to this little creek that fed into the Alabama River and it had a little shallow area that we'd pull up next to and then the two of us would get a seine. Anybody know what a seine is? A seine is a kind of net, two ends, bob, like a float on the top and weights on the bottom so you drop it in and it goes down and stays on the top as well. And then we would grab one end of it each and we would walk towards the shore and then slowly close it in. And by the time we got to the shore, you know what we had in that seine and that net? A whole a day's worth of squiggly little minnows and shiners all just flopping around full of life. We'd put them into a bucket full of water. We'd take it, put it on the boat, and we'd go. Now, when you're fishing with live bait, your job's a lot more straightforward. You have a role. You know, it's not nothing. You got to know where the fish are, and you got to go to them. You got to know what bait to put in front of them. Make sure that it's bait that they actually want to eat. You got to make that bait accessible. You know, put your line at the right depth for the right spot. You do have a role. But other than that, when you're fishing with live bait, it doesn't look like much. You're kind of just sitting there talking. It's not very impressive. There's not a lot of jerking around. There's no special techniques. You just sit. The fish is hungry, and the fish can see that Catawba worm, the bait does its own work. What you're fishing with determines how you fish. And that's essentially what Paul says about his ministry in Corinth in the first five verses of chapter 2 in 1 Corinthians. What you're fishing with determines how you fish. You know, we've been talking about how one of the reasons Paul wrote this letter is that the, the church that he had founded was full of people who were, who were still wishing to have a good reputation in the eyes of the world, who even had, had brought some of that into the church where the church became a kind of platform for them to kind of elbow their way towards the top of the ladder. They came into the church even, even, even falling in line behind specific leaders hoping for a leg up on the other people around them. And Paul's writing this letter saying, no, you can't do that. You don't line up behind... Paul or Apollos or Peter they were Christians and to remind them why it was so foolish what they were doing how they were acting he, he, he reminded them in what, in what Jonathan considered for us last week of the gospel itself like the message that he had brought to them that they had believed it's a message that sounds foolish to the world you don't get ahead believing in a crucified savior lining up behind this loser staking your hopes as someone who was ridden out of the world on a cross and today, he makes the exact same point to challenge them about the way they were relating to each other in the church by reminding them not just of the message that was last week, but of the method he used in communicating that message to them. 
He takes them back to his own ministry to them. When he first came to Corinth to remind them that he was intentional about how he introduced them to Jesus. And his intentionality had everything to do with the nature of this Jesus he was communicating to them. The message defined his method and it ought to define ours too. One way to think about the first five verses of chapter 2 in 1 Corinthians is as a kind of very mini ministry philosophy manual. What kind of ministry should churches be going for? How should we do what it is that we're doing? And maybe that's given you a reason to kind of check out at this point. I mean, I didn't come here for ministry philosophy. You know, that's what you get at seminary. Maybe, maybe if you serve on a church staff or as an elder or something, you need this. But I, I just came for Jesus. And if you just came for Jesus, I, I'm really glad you did. You came for the right thing and you're going to get a full dose of Jesus this morning. But ministry philosophy should matter to you if you're part of a local church because it's your church. And the ministry that happens here is your ministry. And even if, even if you're not the one up here standing and preaching right now, you have enabled me as a preacher by giving me an opportunity to speak to you, by putting me up here and asking me to do it. It's your ministry that I'm part of this morning. And what we want for our church is a real clear perspective held by all of us on how this message that is all our hope in life and in death defines the methods we use in offering that hope, not just to ourselves, but to anyone else who will listen. How does this message shape our method? That's the question for today. And I want to show you three clear goals that Paul has for his ministry that we want for our ministry from 1 Corinthians rather, chapter 2. Three clear goals. I'm going to go ahead and give them to you now, and then we're going to unfold them together a little bit as we walk through this text. The three goals are a straightforward message. That's goal one. A simple style. That's goal two and a strong faith. That's goal three. Goal one, a straightforward message. Goal two for Paul and for us, a simple style. Goal three, a strong faith. Let me read the verses for you. I'm going to ask you to stand with me in honor of God's word. So I pick up in verse, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 1. Paul writes, And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. First goal that Paul mentions in this text, first goal we want for ourselves is a straightforward message. That comes out in verses 1 and 2. He, he gives this goal to us through a contrast that he draws between what he didn't do and what he did do. What he did do is verse 2. I decided to know nothing among you except Christ Jesus and him crucified. He came preaching Christ. He decided to know nothing else among them but that. So why? Why was he so committed to this straightforward message? Why should we be? Why did he decide he would know nothing but Jesus Christ and him crucified? I think he, he came to know nothing but Jesus Christ and him crucified because he was convinced of two things we got to be convinced of as well. 
first he was convinced that Christ crucified is what we need most of all. Whether we know it or not, Christ crucified is what we need most of all. That's why he came knowing nothing but that message. It may not be all that we want, but it is what we need. In verse 1, when Paul mentions lofty speech or wisdom, and something similar to that in verse 4, almost certainly he's referring to a style of rhetoric that was a really big draw in Corinth. It was a form of entertainment as a way. In, in a way, a way to pass the time and to see and to be seen. Uh, you know, back then they didn't have the NFL. They didn't have Bridgestone concerts. They didn't have Netflix subscriptions. They had traveling speakers and popular philosophers. And it was a, a big time when one of these guys would come around, you know, and, and those guys would compete for the same hearers, you know, in a zero sum game. There's only so many people to go around. You want to you wanna make sure your message and your style is captivating the crowd. And so you offer them what you know they enjoy. You study them and then you feed that back. Paul could have done that. He surely showed up knowing that's what they expected and what they wanted. But he's got something he knows people need. He has something they literally can't live without. And he is locked in in his ministry. He, he, is, he is locked in with like a laser focus on getting them that thing. He knows they can't live without Christ crucified. Because what he knows about them is true about us too. They need to be forgiven for sins they've committed against a holy God who takes sin seriously. He, needs, he knows that, that they need to be relieved of the burden of shame they carry on their shoulders, even if they don't realize it or know why it's there. They live with it and they need to be freed from it. And he knows there's only one way to get free of that shame. He knows they need to be assured that they're not alone in this world to make the most of their lives on their own terms. But they are loved deeply by the God who made them. Even at the cost of his own son, he loves them. And, and they need hope that, that one day this broken world so full of sin and so full of sorrow, it will be made new again one day. It'll be made new under a new king who gets it and has the power to do something about it. All of these gifts, all of them, all our hope, they, they come under the one message of the cross. That is the banner. That is the key that holds it all together, that makes it all possible. Paul knows this. God's holy king crucified to set sinners free. You cannot live without this hope. You won't find this hope anywhere else in the world. And that's why when Paul showed up in Corinth, he knew nothing but Jesus Christ and him crucified. It's like Paul sees himself as an oncologist who's, who's figured out a breakthrough drug that could cure cancer once and for all. Imagine that drug was discovered, but there was only one drug. Only one drug would get it done. If that oncologist knows that that drug is available and knows that there's no other way to get the healing everybody wants and needs, well, that oncologist is not going to come offering a portfolio of possible treatments. He's not going to come talking about invasive surgeries or radiation or chemo, much less outdated things like bloodletting or or antibiotics for this kind of problem or Tylenol, some sort of painkiller. He's not going to try to cover the pain or numb the pain. He's going to try to get rid of the cancer. He's got something that'll do it. Of course, he's going to know nothing but that cure. And that, that's Paul. It's not that Paul doesn't talk about the Old Testament, for example, 
or talk about the real life things that are going on in Corinth at that time. He does. This letter is full of, of, of topics. He, he goes back to the Old Testament often, not just here, but in his other letters. And he goes into the nitty gritty of their lives and what they're dealing with. But when Paul goes back to the Old Testament, it's to show how it connects to the cross. And when then Paul looks to their lives, it's to show how the cross affects what they're doing. But Jesus Christ crucified is the hinge. Everything else built to it. And now everything else flows from it. So no matter what Paul is talking about, he's talking about Jesus and him crucified. That's Paul's goal. Because that's what we need most of all. The other thing I think Paul knows, and and the reason he's committed to, to knowing nothing but Christ and him crucified, is that there's only one way to receive him. It's not just that this is what we need most of all. It's that there's, there's only way to get in on what Jesus offers. This is a medicine you can only take straight. Only by faith, a knowing faith, knowing that you're claiming Christ for yourself as your only hope in life and death. That's it. That's the only way to get him. Uh, right now, our, our six-year-old is taking this uh, prescription strength vitamin to help boost bone growth after a broken arm a couple months back. I guess I should take this opportunity to say, if you heard from him that I was involved in the breaking of that bone, as I hear several of you at least did, uh, that is not true. That's dispute. I was in the vicinity of the accident when it occurred, but not in any way responsible for it. Uh, well, he's, he's taking this, this vitamin to boost the bone growth, you know, to get it strong so he's ready to get back out there and tackle his life. Uh, these are big pills, big ones, like big for me, much less for him. He's not used to taking pills. So what we do is pop that little capsule open, pour the powder into his orange juice and let him swig away. He likes orange juice. It tastes good to him. And that, that medicine doesn't affect the taste of the orange juice at all. He can take that orange juice as if it's every other morning and he's getting the medicine along the way. We basically trick him into taking it. You can't get into Jesus like that. You can't offer Christ crucified, buried in some other message that suits something somebody's already interested in. If we could, we would. If Jesus was a medicine you could take like that, well, we'd pull out all the stops. We'd figure out what do people want? We'll give them what they want. We'll bury Jesus in it and then they'll get all the benefit. Why wouldn't we? Our job in that case would be to figure out people, to lean into whatever's popular. And then we, 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 we slide Jesus in along the way. But it just, it doesn't work that way with Christ. You have to know why you need him, know what he offers, claim him for yourself through repentance and faith. It's the only way. Paul knows this, and that's why his methods keep focused on that straightforward message. He knew you couldn't win somebody to a crucified Savior through fancy rhetoric that they already love. Any more than we could win somebody to a crucified Savior through through tapping into their favorite music style and performing it perfectly or offering them the same kind of comedy they could get over at Zany's or anything else that might draw a crowd through a door. They have to see Jesus as he is and believe in him. And that means the message has to stay right at the center, crystal clear in everything we do as a church. There are so many things we could offer as a church 
that would be good to our community, that would be enjoyable for our community. In theory, we could build a gym like the one they got at East Park Community Center right across the street. I hear it's an awesome gym. Or we could, we could build out a sports program like they've got over at Shelby Park. That's where we play baseball. We could do something like that here. If we just wanted to bring our neighbors through the doors, we could just look at what's drawing a crowd out there at any number of healthy, sustainable programs and then do our version. Lean into what's working. But, but what we offer as a local church is different from all of that. It's unique, it's specific, and it cannot be helped at all by tacking on things that in themselves might be great, but, but just have nothing to do with Christ and his crucifixion. That's why Jesus stays at the center. That's why we want him really clear, no matter what we're doing, no matter who we're doing it with. In every gathering, in all our classes, what we're teaching our kids from their earliest lessons to what we're teaching our adults, no matter how old they are, and everything in between. We want Jesus at the center. Speaking of the in-between, if you're in the, uh, the youth group, you know, middle school and high school kids, can you just raise your hand so I know where you are? I'm gonna talk to you guys for a minute. There you guys are, all these sheepish looks. Man, it's good to see y'all all over this room. I am so, so thankful for you. That's the first thing I want you to know. You bring so much life and energy and joy to our church. You are providing wonderful models for the littler kids who are coming up behind you. And we're so grateful for what you're getting through volunteers every Sunday morning and on a lot of our Sunday evenings where they're, they're preparing and then teaching you the Bible week after week. We're so thankful for that. I hear in your classes, you guys have a lot of fun. You know, I got one of these, one of these young people in my home and I get, I get reports on how fun it is when you guys get together. And that is a joy to hear. I want more and more and more fun. It ought to be fun when you get together with your friends at church. But mostly what I'm thankful for is that I hear week after week after week that your teachers keep pointing you back to Jesus. Over and over, they're pointing you to Jesus. The reason that makes me so thankful is that you are never going to outgrow your need for Jesus. You can take it from me. A lot of the things you're into now, you will outgrow. I used to be really, really good at the Nintendo 64. Madden 64, Mario Kart, 007, and a few other games that I could beat you on today if I wanted to, and we could find one of those consoles. I'm not into that anymore. I'm still every bit as into pizza as I ever was, but a lot of things you're into now, you won't be into later. You will never outgrow your need for Jesus. Jesus will comfort you when you're grieving, and one day you will. Jesus will be there for you when you fail because one day you will. You'll need to be reminded that all your worth is in him. Jesus will be with you as a friend long after you don't care about sports or video games anymore. And when you die, because you will, he will raise you up. And we want you focused on him now. Now is the time to know your need for Jesus. So we promise you that every week, every time we're together, that's what you get fed on. And we're so glad that you want to hear about him. 
It's been said that you win people to what you win people with. You guys ever heard that? That's why Paul came preaching a straightforward message. He wanted to win them to Jesus with Jesus. You can't win somebody to Jesus with something else, some other kind of bait. Doesn't work that way. A straightforward message. That's a core to his goals. Now let me show you goal number two. Goal number two is in verses three and four. It's a simple style. A simple style. Style. If you think about the first two verses, is talking mostly about what he came to offer and what he didn't. These next two verses focus more on how he offered what he offered. When he preached Christ crucified, when that was all he knew among them, how did he do it? He did it with a simple style. On purpose, he kept his style simple. It's not immediately obvious uh, what he had in mind, Paul, whenever he says in verse 3 that he, he was with them in weakness and fear. And much trembling. There's a lot of options out there people throw around. No one really knows for sure. It, it could have been the fact that he wasn't that impressive to look at, that physically he was small or frail uh, or, 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 or held back by some sort of disease or disability. It could have been the fact that his job wasn't very impressive, you know, as he was making tents to give himself a chance to preach to them on the weekends. Uh, it could have been that he was relatively poor or that he was always being persecuted by the powers that be could have been just about anything but we do know the point even if we're not sure what he has in mind his point is that I didn't come posturing I didn't come projecting strength I didn't come trying to make you think I'm going places fall in behind me I'll take you places too you get behind me you won't be sorry fall in line he came with nothing to recommend him he wasn't playing any of their games what, what, what he means is even more clear in verse 4 there he says, I didn't use speech and a message that, that, that employed plausible words of, of wisdom. That wasn't my strategy. He's back to talking about that style that, we, that, that we've seen him talk about before. Uh, he's, he's back to what he said in chapter 1, verse 17. When I came, I came preaching Christ, not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of his power. That's 117. He wanted to preach the gospel, that straightforward message, in a simple style that put the spotlight on the power of the cross, not the power of the preacher. That's the key. That's why he preached the way he did. He wanted the spotlight on the power of the cross, not the power of the preacher. That was an intentional choice. See, Paul, he could have impressed them with his words. He was actually really, really good with words. He was an amazing writer. He had plenty of talent. He, he could have held his own with the kind of style that they were used to and were looking for. I mean, one writer put it, uh, pointed out how, how his talent with words, it actually comes through in this letter several different times. If, uh, we're still using phrases that he gave us in this letter 2,000 years later. If you've ever used the phrase twinkle of an eye, if you've ever used the phrase scum of the earth, I hope you use that carefully if you use it. If you've ever used the word, all, the, the phrase all things to all people or heard that, you have Paul to thank for 1 Corinthians. That's where those phrases came from. Or how many of you ever heard or even used 1 Corinthians 13 in your wedding? Love is patient. Love is kind. Love does not envy or boast. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, 
endures all things. Love never ends. Oh, those words sing, don't they? Paul wrote that. This guy has got chops. He absolutely could have handled plausible words of wisdom if that's what he'd wanted to use to get them to Jesus. Why did he play up his weakness rather than his strength? The reason he did it is that Paul wanted an obvious, unmistakable, undeniable gap between the effects of the message and the way he presented it. He wanted an obvious, unmistakable, undeniable gap between the effects his message had on the people who heard it and the way he presented that message to them in the first place. They wanted, he wanted them to think, huh, that guy? Saying those words? Saw this result? How? How in the world? When you're bass fishing with artificial lures, with all these techniques I was telling you about for how fast you reel in, for how much you jiggle the rod, for what angle you're working from. I mean, somebody sees you in action and you know what you're doing and then you catch a fish. They probably think, yeah, that makes sense. <laughs> that guy's working it. That guy's really doing something. Of course he caught a fish. That makes sense. When there's real bait though, live bait, when there's a Catawba worm wiggling on the end of that hook, well, that guy just sits there, sips on his Coca-Cola, reads a book, keeps one eye on the bobber just in case. And when that guy catches a fish, you think that must be some bait because that guy was just there. <laughs> he wasn't doing anything. That must be some bait. When you think, see, see him catch a fish, you say, well, that's what I call a demonstration of power. Paul is jealous for the glory of the message itself, backed by the power of God's spirit to work it. He wants himself out of the way. You see that? Friends, this has a huge effect on our goals for our preaching ministry here in our church. I know most of you won't do the preaching, but you are a huge part of our preaching ministry. You are facilitating it. You're praying for it. You've called for it. I, I and other preachers wouldn't be here unless you had asked us to do this work in our life together. And, and hopefully you're learning from it. In a crucial sense, our preaching ministry is yours. And I want to share, I, I want to make sure that we all share the same goals for what this time in our gatherings is week after week after week. And, and here, let me, let me put those goals in another set of words. I want, I want you to know them. I want you to embrace them too. And in our preaching, in our sermons here at Edgefield, we really, really, really want our sermons to be clear. And we really do not want our sermons to be clever. We do want them to be clear. We do not want them to be clever. Let me, let me tell you what I mean. Clear sermons are not easy to write. We're not saying that by, by, by wanting clear, simple sermons, we're phoning it in. Actually, it can be a lot harder to try to make something seem obvious especially when you're talking about God and, and, and what he is. So we want to give our absolute best to making the beauty of Jesus as obvious as possible for everybody. I mean, that, that's why good illustrations are so helpful if you can find them. Uh, that's why helpful applications are so important to make a sermon what it needs to be. That's why simple language is a goal that we have. And we want to do our best 
every single week because Jesus is worth it and, and you're worth it. But, but the preacher's job in making the message about Jesus clear is really more like a fisherman's job in dropping in that minnow right down to eye level, making sure it's at the right level for the fish he's going for. If, if, if all you remember from a sermon like this one is the fact that I like to fish, well, that's a sign that that illustration probably did more work than it needed to, that it actually stole the show, that the point it was meaning to make, that the window it was meaning to throw open on who Jesus is and his power uh, w- w- was maybe just not that effective. What, here's how one person put it. That's probably a sign. If you, if you leave talking about the illustration, not the thing it was illustrated, it's probably a sign that I photobombed Jesus. I love that image. It's like, yeah, here's Jesus, but notice me too. <laughs> I'm here. Did you see what I did there? That's why we, we do want to be clear. We do not want to be clever. And I mean, I don't just mean that we, that we aren't trying to, but you know, we're kind of neutral on cleverness. I mean, we actively don't want to be clever. We don't want to put a really thick layer of us into the sermons that, that, that you will notice and be impressed by. We want to try to avoid using things like that if we can. It might be that the more complex and creative, the more unique to us the style, the more you go away thinking, how do you do that? And not thinking, wow, Jesus. How glorious is he? And beyond it all, the more we put into trying to look clever, to trying to come up with something that nobody but us could have come up with, the more it looks like we think we're fishing with artificial bait that'll only catch something if we work it. That's not what we think. We believe that Jesus carries his own power through his word. All of our hope is tied up in that. That's why we do want to be clear and we do not want to be clever. You know, this, this principle also affects how we talk about other churches around town. You know, America has always been full of lots of different kinds of churches, Nashville even more so than America at large. I think in that environment where you've got a lot of different kinds of churches around, it's always, for hundreds of years, it's been tempting for churches to position themselves against one another like any business would. You know, if you're in a crowded market, you've got to show what you offer no one else does. You've got to play up your own uniques, uniqueness and your own strengths. That's usually going to mean playing something up that has nothing to do with Jesus and him crucified. Because he is nobody's proprietary product. Jesus is available to anybody. You know, it, 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 the more you play up what you offer that no one else does, the more, again, it looks like you think you're fishing with something artificial. You know, when you go to Bass Pro Shops, the way that they try to stand out from one another is great branding on that packaging, right? It needs to have a nice look to it. It needs to have a, a flashy picture. It maybe needs to come with some sort of celebrity endorsement. If you want to fish like that guy, you need this unique proprietary lure. That creativity is, is, is crucial to fighting in a crowded market when what you have to offer is essentially dead. But I don't know if you've ever been fishing in a rural area where they, where they have a lot of live bait for sale. In those areas, you're driving down to the lake, you're going to pass any number of old ratty-looking gas stations, and they'll all have the same sign up in the window. Black sign, white text, live bait. 
That's all they tell you. <laughs> That's all you need to know. Because you know what? Their live bait's the same live bait they've got across the street at the other gas station. It all works the same. They're not advertising that our worms wiggle to get 50% more attention from your bass. <laughs> they don't average that our, our minnows will stay alive twice as long as that guy's minnows. Nope, we just got live bait. You know what that is. You know why you need it. Come get it if you want it. It's here. Hey, we... we this is why we mostly rely on you guys for our marketing. In our budget last year as a church, we spent over $100,000 on missions, local and international ministry given to our partners to take the gospel to places where it isn't known yet and to drive it further into places here where it needs to be known better. We spent roughly $2,000 on what you might call marketing, website maintenance type things. That's intentional. We don't want to look like we think we're fishing with artificial bait they don't have down the street. We don't want to look like what we're offering is different from any other gospel preaching churches around town. That's why we keep it simple here. And that's why we pray for fruit there in all those churches that are going to know nothing but Christ and him crucified. We're for them. We are clinging to that straightforward message and we want to make that clear by using a simple style as best we can. And that brings me to goal three. Why? A strong faith, that's verse five. Paul tells us in verse five why it's so important to him that he stays focused on this straightforward message in this simple style. He wants them to have a faith that does not rest in the wisdom of men but in the power of God. That's the only strong faith there is. The only faith that will last is a faith that's not in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Can you see how the strength of our faith is at stake in what we preach and how we preach it? I guess one way to put it is that Paul, Paul wants them to know, he wants us to know that anyone can do what he came to Corinth to do. And in another way, no one can do what he wanted done in Corinth. In a way, anyone can do it. In a way, no one can do it. Here's what I mean. In a way, anyone can do what Paul came to do. If their faith rested on something unique to Paul, Paul would have to keep up the performance. He'd have to keep on seeing what no one else could see, or speaking in a way that no one else could speak, or figuring out one after another creative program no one else had thought of yet to appeal to his context and keep up with the times. For their sake, Paul would have to keep it up. But what if he couldn't keep up in this creativity arms race? What if he got writer's block? What if he couldn't figure out just the right illustration? What if something more entertaining moved in down the street? What if Paul lost the ability to write or to speak? What about when Paul died? What then? Where would their faith rest then? The wisdom of men is just too fragile a place to put your faith. He knows that. But the power of God, it carries on. Anyone can get in on this power. Anyone with this message, every carrier of it is a conduit of this power. It's how God works. And Paul wanted them to, and he wants us to, to trust that. I mentioned it was my granddad that taught me how to fish. He was amazing at fishing. He spent his whole life doing it. He had all kinds of tricks. And I didn't have enough, long enough with him to get there. When he got too old and too sick to continue fishing, like my training stopped. 
And he had so much more that he could have passed on. There was, a, there was a sense in which the skill I had drafted off of only lasted as long as his life did. But my earliest fishing memories with him were sitting on his dock or on his pontoon boat, both of us with simple little rods and reels, with live earthworms on the hook and a bobber on the water, both of us watching those bobbers waiting on a little brim to bite. And in that context, fishing with that bait, level playing field. Me and granddaddy had the same shot. Paul kept his message the way he kept it and his style the way he presented it so they would know better to trust in him, so they would know that anyone can do what he was doing. And in another way, he kept it the way he kept it because he knew no one but God can do what he wants to see done. He wants people transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. He wants dead hearts brought to life, stone turned to flesh. He wants people's hearts captured by a message that's foolish in the eyes of the world. Nobody can do that but God. He wants to see miracles. And that's why he wants their faith resting in God. And that's what we want. We want to double down on what God says he's going to bless. If his word says he'll use it, we do it. And that way, when it, if and when we thrive as a church, for as long as we thrive, in whatever way we thrive, it'll be obvious that he's the one behind all of it. Our, our faith, its strength, it will rest in this. And friends, that's why we pray so much in our church. We believe, we're just convinced as we can be, the health of our church is going to depend a lot less on the quality of our performers than on the quality of our prayers. That's why so much of our morning gatherings is spent praying. I mean, a talk like the one I'm giving now kind of makes a, a sort of sense. There are podcasts out there. You're used to hearing talks. Maybe you go to school. You're used to hearing lectures. There's something like this that, that we can find in other parts of our life. And the music that we sing, that kind of makes sense too. We've got a category for Spotify or for, long, or for uh, concerts and in-person performances. But these prayers that we pray when we gather, these long prayers... <laughs> Uh, that's really unusual. And if God isn't listening, if he's not living and active and at work among his people, then what we do when we pray, it's not very engaging. It's a little bit boring and overall a big waste of time. If you believe he is there, if you believe that everything that really matters depends on his power and not yours, then prayer is exactly what you crave. You want more of it. You know this is how he involves us in his work. And prayer itself is real work with real impact. Friends, there may not be any better indicator of whether a church believes they're fishing with live bait than the amount of time they spend praying together for God's power to move among them. All our hope is in him. That's why our message stays focused on Christ. That's why our style, Lord willing, will grow more and more simple the better we get, the better equipped we are at presenting him. Also that our faith stays strong on the only foundation that lasts. Will you pray with me now that God will help us to do our job and trust him to do his Oh, Father, 
your word has made it so clear, even in these few verses we've considered this morning. It is our job to make Christ clear. It is your job to make Christ compelling. We pray that you would help us to continue to give everything we have to doing our job, that you would help us trust you to do yours. We pray this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.